I value being alive and I value loving people. And I think to do, I mean, that maybe that sounds sort of corny, but I think to do that means like, if you really love being alive, then you also accept that being alive includes pain, grief, hurt, um, confusion, all of these things. And you don't see those things as inherently negative. You see them as inherently part of the living project. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places. And this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. I'm so excited to share today's conversation with Chloe Cooper-Jones, a writer who I really, really admire. She is a trained philosopher and also a journalist and magazine writer. She was a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize in feature writing. And most recently, she's the author of a memoir called Easy Beauty. Jones was born with a rare congenital condition called sacral agenesis, which affects both her stature and her walking and causes chronic pain. Easy Beauty is in some sense a memoir of living with that physical disability and the cruelty or confusion, condescension, and dismissal that disability can elicit from other people. To deal with that and with the pain, Jones learned as a kid to retreat to something called the neutral room in her mind. The book is also kind of a story about her renegotiating her relationship with the neutral room and with the concept of beauty and intimacy. We got to talk about all of that and a lot more. Um, It was just a joy. I really... I really had a ball talking to her, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Here's Chloe Cooper-Jones. I mean, I think the the threshold that sort of grounds my book the most is this threshold, this personal threshold within um, my life, which is this balance between um, living a lot of my life in a sort of dissociated, abstract mental space, which I call the neutral room. Um, and this abstract sort of mental space was, uh, a sort of tool that I was taught very young by a doctor who was trying to help me with pain management that I experienced. And he was telling me that you could imagine, uh, a mental space within your mind where you really didn't have a body. So you weren't feeling or experiencing pain and you could kind of put yourself in this mental space. And the idea is that um, it kind of short circuits anticipated pain because a lot of the pain that we feel in our lives is anticipated pain or the or the fear of pain to come or the expectations that um, a situation is going to put us in pain. So if you're in this mental room or this like um, abstracted mental space, you're only thinking about, you know, eight seconds at a time is what he taught me. And you're not thinking about pain to come. And that became a really useful tool for me to sort of separate myself from the experience of physical pain. And then as I got older, especially as I became very serious about writing and and literature, like that abstracted mental space became a place of great agency as well. It's where I do my thinking. It's where I do my writing. Um, It's a space that I'm in when I'm reading. But the sort of negative side of that is that I can also 
um, dissociate from all kinds of painful realities that I actually should be really participating in. Sometimes things that are requiring my um, my vulnerability or my my just my presence, um, or are requiring you know a certain responsibility for me to face something in my life that's challenging. And because I have such a strong sort of mental retracted space, um, I can avoid those things pretty seamlessly. <laughs> and so a lot of um, the book is me thinking about how motherhood kind of forces me out of that abstracted space and thinking about how to stay on the right side of the threshold of the space. So it's it's not that I want to get rid of the powerful um, peace and sense of agency that having a retreat gives me, right? Like, and I'm, I'm curious if this resonates with you at all, Jordan, as a writer, like I think most writers have, uh, developed their skills because being in their own mind is often the safest or the most thrilling or, you know, place or a place of great agency for them. And so I don't want to get rid of that. But I also want to be able to locate the threshold, um, which once crossed allows me to not uh, abdicate, you know, responsibilities in my present reality. Does this make sense? Yeah, it really does. I I keep thinking about as you're talking. I keep thinking about this scene in your book where you come home and you are sort of standing at the threshold of the bedroom and you're looking at yeah. your um, your husband and your son. And it's it kind of feels like the moment in the book where you realize that being in the neutral room means that you, you, you're separating yourself from them in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that you need to be both mentally and in some ways sort of physically more more present and it's about, you know, kind of struggling your way out, out of, out of the neutral room and back into the world. Um, like how do you negotiate the difference between retracting from physical pain and retracting from like social or emotional pain, which is also like the, a lot of the circumstances where where you find yourself in the neutral room. Like, it seems like it would be a different task to, to come, to come back down out of the mind, um, in those two, two cases. I think part of being a writer, which has given me some of the best, you know, things that I have in my life and the greatest sense of, um, of self and agency and, and, um, and fulfillment, like, but part of that work is, is living in that abstracted mental space. And I think that there's a really, this very interesting threshold that happens for a lot of writers where it's like, when something really difficult is happening for me, whether it be physical pain that I'm experiencing, like if I'm in a lot of physical pain, or if I'm sitting in a real moment of difficulty with another person, whether it be my own family or a stranger, there will be a part of me that is always able to take that situation and to dissociate a little bit from it and then go, how am I going to write about this later? Like I can just write about it later. 
And I will take some of the like cruelest or hardest or most emotionally complex or even beautiful or meaningful moments of my life and go, well, how am I just going to flip this into art later? And Mm -hmm. that threshold is really um, central to who I am. It's also like being on the right side of that threshold allows me to do the work that I want to do most in my life. Being on the wrong side of that threshold keeps me so distant from my lived life and from other people. And I, you brought up, I'm thinking about this because you brought up this moment in the book that I think is, is a really important moment in my life, which is I'm standing at the threshold of my son's um, room. And what's happening on one side of the threshold is my son and my husband are playing with blocks and they're like, come over here and like sit on the ground and like build a, you know, a car out of blocks with us. And I'm on the other side of the threshold going, no, no, I don't want to do that. But I do want to observe the fact that I don't want to do it. And rather than try to like process it and think about why I don't want to join you, I want to just write about it. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to write about it. Like I don't like I want to like hold on to the aesthetics of this moment. I want to like think about like the glare off the street light and how that's coming in the room. And I want to remember exactly what you've said. I want to remember that you said like sit down and build something with us. And like, oh, that has that sort of loaded me. I'm going to hold on to that little bit of dialogue. Then I, you know, in real life, it's like, I'm getting my phone app and I'm writing down like, come in. But, you know, it's like, I'm churning it all into material, which then of course becomes um, the book, which I'm really proud of. The problem is if you live your life exclusively in that material building space, it's like, you're not grasping the reality of that moment or processing the reality of the moment. And that part of the threshold or that side of the threshold is like a straight up just defense mechanism that's keeping me from um, just fully engaging in, in a life with others, which is a very easy thing for me to want to do is retreat from a life with others. But I think that's not particularly unique to me. I think that's pretty common maybe especially for writers. Do you ever, do you identify, is anything I'm saying resonating, Jordan? Do you ever have (laughs) these moments? Sure. Yeah. I often, and especially in moments that feel difficult, I don't think that I have quite the same, I am, I am not always kind of reverting to that, to, you know, quote Nora Ephron, that everything is copy mentality. Like I, I am not necessarily always trying to make a note though. I, I often am, but it's not like, I don't necessarily go to the thought, how am I going to write about this later? But I do find that I often feel whether or not I want to be kind of held at a remove, like an, at a, at a sort of a cooler analytical remove Mm. when something hard is happening. And then it, and then like the way that I wind up actually experiencing the hard thing is after the fact, usually by writing it or by writing, you know, just to, to myself about it. And that actually, I, I get very frustrated with, with that because I would, I think it would be better to just be in the hard thing as it's happening or feel feel whatever the hard feeling is 
in that moment. I think it would be easier to be, I think it would be better for my relationships to be able Mm -hmm. to be, even just to show, to show hurt in the moment, which is something that you write about. There are so many like horrendously hurtful (laughs) moments in this book where people say something awful to you or do something awful um, intentionally or unintentionally. And in many cases, you choose not to respond or not to even register hurt to them for reasons that make a lot of sense. And, and that's sort of like part of, part of what I understand you to be talking about when we're talking about this, like sort of retraction to the neutral space. But for myself, I feel like it is sometimes a struggle. My, my inability to, to register my an, an emotional reaction in real time to the people that I'm <laughs> the people that I'm close or even just to strangers you know like I often don't get angry until after something's over and I think yeah. that that is good for writing you know like I, I very quickly like jump up into the space of my head and like feel that the thing to do is to sort of be be calm and neutral yeah. while I while while whatever is happening is happening um and that's like probably a good coping mechanism, but it just feels, it, it it does cost something. And I think some of that cost is extracted in like an inability to be, to be honest. Um, I think that's such a brilliant thing. Um, I think you're saying such a brilliant thing right now. And I think this, like, this idea of these actions that we do, however we respond to pain, being both a helpful or useful or even art generating coping mechanism, but that it also always comes with a cost is such a good way to approach these things. Like, you know, everything is copy is like, that's cute and that's pithy, but also like, um, that's unhealthy. Like, that's like deeply awful. (laughs) It's it's terrible. It's like, well, yeah, everything can become copy. Like there's a, there's one side of that where you go, God, the hardest things I go through could become things that help me process them, or could become things that I write about that help other people or that connect me much more deeply to the human experience. What a joy, what a gift. Like that's so exciting. The other side of it is like, no, everything's not copy. Like some things are just, um, like being, present and actually feeling your feelings in the moment or being deeply connected to a person you love when they're right there and not and not funneling all of that into representational um, depictions of that moment later. I want to connect all of this to the way I think about the people in the book and the way I write about the people in the book who say these um, unpleasant things to me is is to resist the urge to villainize any of this, right? So there's no, there are no villains in my book. There are people who act out of their own insecurity, their own fears, or their own ignorance. 
Um, nobody does that in the book more than me. So if there is a villain in the book, it's me. And I don't think I am a villain. I think I'm just a person that's capable of, um, of making a lot of mistakes in the struggle to try to be better. And I think that everybody in the book is also doing that. And occasionally I'm catching them at a bad moment or when they're expressing the worst of their limitations. And I think at the beginning of the book, I don't want to engage. It's not that I don't want to engage in the cruelty of it. I don't want to engage in the humanity of it. I don't want to think about them as full, real, whole people who are capable of of being wrong about things and speaking out of turn from that place of, um, yeah, of, of ignorance, I guess, is the simplest way to put that. But by the end of the book, I'm really trying to come out of that retracted space to live in these moments with these people, not because I want to take on um, or internalize what they're saying to me, but because I want to give them the chance to be seen as very full, real people who within that full scope of their humanity are capable of being hurtful um, as, as am I. And one of the last chapters of the book is, is me being in Cambodia and recognizing my own ability to reduce another person down to a version of their tragedy that that I don't really have any understanding of or to take a very limited view of of someone else that plays a big role in that chapter with me so every single thing that i'm talking about other people doing or all those sort of reductive ways in which people are communicating with me it's really important for me to show in the book that i'm e- because i'm just alive and i'm a human i'm in the world and I'm subject to all kinds of bad narratives and I'm subject to all kinds of limitations. Um, I'm equally capable of doing those things. And so the project is for me to not retreat from that. Neither like not to retreat from it in other people, but not to retreat from it in myself, but to sit with it and to allow those moments to not define somebody, but show me the sort of wideness of of what it is to to be a person you know stumbling badly around with our limited consciousness in this very complex world yeah do you, how do you think about that as in relation to the like a mandate to forgive like do you feel like holding holding people's complexity in the way that you're describing and trying to see them as fully human is the same thing as feeling like you need to for, forgive yourself or forgive other people when they are like really, really screwing up or really being cruel, even if they don't mean to be? Well, I don't, I tend to stay away from mandates in general. So I don't feel like there's a mandate to forgive. I think, again, I mean, and this is the right place to be talking about this. It's like, there's a threshold, right? Like, and every person that we're encountering, um, we're expending a certain amount of energy And so I do think, you know, I I believe very strongly in restorative justice. I believe very strongly in um, humanity being uh, 
a very uh, nuanced web of lots of things. I believe very strongly in not acting as though people are capable of being um, perfect all the time. And I try to think about what I really, really value in this life. And I think the core things that I really value is I value being alive and I value loving people. And I think to do, I mean, that maybe that sounds sort of corny, but I think to do that means like, if you really love being alive, then you also accept that being alive includes pain, grief, hurt, um, confusion, all of these things. And you don't see those things as inherently negative. You see them as inherently part of the living project. So I try to feel that same way about people that if I really genuinely say like, I love people and I want, I want to be a person in a world of others, then that means that I can't, I can't look at people as if, um, they're only worthy of my love if they're always doing the right thing. I have to look at them as if they're worthy of dignity and respect because they're because they're alive and they're human. And that includes um, trying to be empathetic when they mess up um, or or cause pain, trying to keep my mind as open as possible to the fact that, you know, my perspective is not, my perspective on a situation is not the perspective. It's just one, one tiny fragment of reality. But I do think there's obviously a a limit to that because I think that you can, I think the thing I don't want to get lost or I wouldn't ever want to downplay is that accountability is, is really important. So I think that I think part of the project of loving humanity is taking each person as a singular individual, a particular individual. So that means necessarily that that when some some conflict is occurring within that particular individual, you're trying to give them the dignity of thinking of them as whole and as entirely unique and unto themselves. And so I think that's my resistance to mandates because sometimes you in, you encounter a particular person that really requires so much of your love and energy and empathy and your own growth in order to stay close to them. And then other people you can go, well, I, I respect, I, I see your value in the world, but I, I'll leave it to others. To, yeah, I'm to, good. <laughs> I'm good. Like I shall leave it to others to, you know, it's like, so. I don't think anybody should feel forced to to forgive everyone or forced to, you know, you know, it doesn't it doesn't reflect badly on an individual to say I shall leave this one to others. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And as you were speaking I was thinking that actually presence, full presence and coming sort of coming down from from the the space in your mind or coming out of the neutral room is actually required to ask for accountability of people. And, and asking accountability of people is a way of acknowledging their, is a way of drawing closer, I think, and of, of of actually seeing somebody's full humanity. I think sometimes it can feel, um, 
easier. Maybe I should just speak for myself. Sometimes it can feel easier to be like, you know what? Like it's, it's fine. Like, I don't really need to engage around this hurt. Um, but actually that's a way of denying somebody their full, it's a way of reducing. And maybe this is a stranger in the street who said something ugly to me. And I just say, fine, whatever. I don't, you know, right. And that's a way of, of my reducing that person to that one thing and dismissing them as opposed to saying that's a whole person. I want to hold, I want to, I want to engage with them as a whole person, which means I'm going to hold them to accountability for yeah. for that thing they said that hurt me, whether that's a friend or a stranger or whatever. And it's and you can't do that without making yourself vulnerable. And you yeah. can't do that if you are if you are sort of retracted into 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 a mental analytical space. Or you can't you can't go only from there. I think that's just the most correct thing. And I think it's like such a a beacon to live one's life by and is really a profound thing. Um, Probably we would agree, like there are moments where you can allow the stranger to, you know, you're busy. We all have a life. We're exhausted. Like sometimes a stranger just passes you by and you go, "Uh, you know, I'm good. Again, I'll leave that to others to engage in your humanity today. But so it's like, I do want to give myself permission to say, I, you know, I'm one person, I have a limited amount of energy to give to other people. And I have a lot of, um, a lot of things I want to accomplish for myself. But so I have those boundaries. But I think what you're saying is so crucial. It's like, to, to go, oh, you know, sometimes people will be like, oh, well, don't worry about them. Like, screw them. Who cares about that? It's like, well, no, I, to say you don't care just to not express, um, what it is that's happened and being open to, you know, all these sort of conflict resolutions or, or believing that people can say hurtful things, but have the ability to see those things as hurtful and change or what like, I think that's like one of the most precious gifts we can give to each other. And it's something that speaks very deeply to me because as disabled woman, and as a very visually disabled woman, I'm constantly being categorized and dismissed. And I think everybody, I don't think this is unique to disability. I think everybody experiences a version of this. But I think for me, I see it. I see it all all the time where it's like, people don't know that much about disability. So they see me and they can't quite understand the narrative life that I should fit into. So they assign me a category. And because I'm very small, um, sometimes that category is like, childlike um or because i walk with a sort of you know side to side gait that category can be um that i'm assigned to is weak or precarious and then people just respond to me from those narratives right and they are shocked when i'm not particularly weak or i'm not childlike you know and when i have agency or sexual desire or am a complicated and flawed like whole human being it can be very disorienting to some people like i've experienced a lot of people's cognitive dissonance and from that cognitive dissonance their dismissal their anger um their their cruelty that's really where a lot of the the most painful experiences for me come from is just simply people's struggle with the fact that they don't have good narratives to apply to me and then when I don't fit into the narratives that they try to jam me into, they feel the the grave discomfort of cognitive dissonance. 
And so another thing is too, is like my body language, I think is very different from other people's because I'm constantly managing pain. So I tend to shift a lot in my seat or I cross my arms over my chest or I sometimes I'm, you know, my pain can show up on my face and look like I'm grimacing or something. And so I've also constantly been misread, like my body cues are misread by people all the time. And to constantly live under this experience, every time you step out in public of being misunderstood, misread, miscategorized, misnarrativized, and then either disappointing or upsetting people when, when you don't meet the expectations that they quickly put on you. Um, that's obviously a really difficult way to, to live a life. And my response to that for a long time was to retreat from all of that because I didn't want to deal with it because it is, in fact, um, painful to deal with. But I think a lot of what the book is trying to get, the point that I'm trying to get myself to in the book is to say, like, I'm, I'm, I'm collaborating when I retreat. This is why what you're saying, I just it's so moving to me because it's like when I retreat. When I say like, whatever, I'm doing the thing to them that they're doing to me. And that, of course, builds this feedback loop in which we just deepen that dismissal of each other's singularity. And I'm playing my own role in that. And so much of what I'm trying to do in getting out of the neutral room and getting down into the like mess of humanity is to assert my own singularity through the recognition of other people's as well. So that, that becomes the new feedback loop. Right. That makes me think of something else that comes up in Easy Beauty, which is that you might, one might suppose that a writer who is sort of confronting a life where they are constantly misnarrativized would automatically sort of seek to write about their narrative to put to kind of try to put it on record or or make corrections via via writing but you avoided writing about disability for a long long time um and for reasons that that make a lot of sense that that are about you know that as you articulated them in the book not not wanting to be reduced as a scholar to to an identity um and i I wanted to ask what it felt like to write this book then, which is not just a, a book about what it feels like to live in your body, but also what it feels like to, to be a writer and a thinker who, who changes her mind about whether it's worth her, her writing time to put this down. Yeah. Well, one thing I tried to do just structurally from like a craft perspective throughout the book was constantly um, both me personally or just putting this into a lot of situations in the book, just like everybody being wrong about everything all the time. So <laughs> it, it, like, you know, one of the one of the rules that that you're supposed to live by or something in nonfiction is that you're a reliable source of information and I am not in this book, right? So it, very importantly, at several points, I'm trying to like, quote unquote, tell my story, like my birth story or things about my parents. 
And throughout the book, you find out that I'm constantly getting those things wrong. I'm getting, I'm being told the wrong stories or I'm believing the wrong stories or I'm creating false memories that then other people have to come in and, and correct. And I do that very intentionally because the whole, you know, the whole like core of this book is about how common and again, not evil, just human, not, not, you know, you're not a villain. If you do this, it's just a human thing is to hold on to a narrative. And quite often that narrative is wrong. So I hold on to all these narratives about what it means to be disabled, what other people are thinking about me, whether, you know, the role that my disability played in my parents' lives um, and in one of my parents' Um, his absence in my life. And throughout the book, I'm constantly being shown that I'm wrong about all these things. And then also throughout the book, there almost on every single page, there's a moment in which somebody's perspective, something happens and your perspective is radically changed. And that happens on like a micro level. Like I, you know, one example is like, I'm on a train in Italy and the train turns a corner and the mountains, um, are replaced by a lake. So the light changes. And because the light changes, I can literally perceive new things in the train car that I'm in. So that's maybe like a literal perceptual shift. Um, or I'm in a sculpture and I'm like lost my son inside of a Richard Serra sculpture. And it's like every step that I'm taking inside of the sculpture is forcing a sort of perceptual shift, but also characters throughout the book and myself are constantly experiencing these perceptual shifts. And I wanted that to be like both part of the sort of structural integrity of the book um, or the, the structural architecture, like, you know, the, or the conceptual architecture of the book, but also like the beating pulse of the book. So if you read, you know, if you spend 288 pages with me in, in this book, like my hope is that because you're so accosted by by all these people being wrong all the time or all these narrative shifting or perceptual you know perceptual shifts that that sort of builds a permission in the mind of the reader to look for those moments in their own lives and not be afraid of them or immediately assign sort of a negative valence to them and i think the biggest thing for me was you know and this gets back to like the core of your question is the perceptual shift around talking about disabilities. So, you know, as I was saying it, you know, a minute before, it's like, if that's the lens that other people use to reduce me or dehumanize me using the disability lens to um, assign the wrong category to me or to assign pity to me when I don't need to be pitied or whatever, whatever thing that they're thinking, like, if that's a lens that I'm seen through, then I don't want to amplify it. And that's how I thought for most of my life. I don't want to amplify that lens. So I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to study it. I'm not going to write about it. Um, the problem with that, I mean, you, you can see probably, you know, my logic, maybe you can follow that logic or be empathetic as to why I had that logic. The problem with that is that um, you, I can't pretend that I'm not disabled. I can't ever not be disabled and I can't ever present to another person as not disabled. So 
if I'm acting as though that part of me, that extremely important, real, intricate part of me doesn't exist, then everybody around me knows I'm not being very authentic. And if I'm not being very authentic or like integrated or self-aware when I'm presenting myself to other people, then they don't respond to me very authentically. But if I do try to be more self-aware, more um, accepting and, and, and fully engaging in the full reality of myself, my identity, how I present then, and to understand what that, that means in my life, then of course I start to present much more authentically. And then of course the like, you know, this is the thing everybody figures out way before me is that if you're more genuine and open and vulnerable and authentic and integrated and self-aware, then when you're talking to people that gives them the permission to be the same. And suddenly you're actually connecting and you're actually seeing each other and you're actually removing some of those barriers of narrative. So the thing that I was always after, um, I, you know, I was the thing in my own way, my own resistance was actually the real barrier to the thing I wanted. So that is, you know, that's a life-changing perceptual shift for me. And it's one that I'm trying very hard to capture in this book. And the book is, is completely takes place in the struggle of that. It ends at a point where I'm just beginning to get a clue. I really wanted to write a book about what it felt like just grand on a granular level, what it feels like to work really hard to change your mind. How many months and or years ago did you finish this book? And what's it like? What's it like living on the other side of some of this, some of these decisions? Mm. Um, let's see. I started writing this for myself just as like journal entries in 2017. And then I sold the book in um, January 2020 with the plan to spend the next year traveling <laughs> And writing as I was traveling, which twenty twenty didn't turn out that way. And so then I finished. I sold it on proposal, and then wrote it from January twenty twenty to December twenty twenty. So I had tons of material, and I had a book proposal. But I actually sat down and really put the work together um, in the sequence that it is throughout. Um, the beginning of the pandemic. And I think, you know, that wasn't the plan. Obviously, that was nobody's plan to, to spend their lives um, that way. But I think it created an interesting tension in the book. And maybe this is just my brain rationalizing and trying to make the best out of what was actually like very, obviously traumatic months of my life. But you know, the the notes, the generative notes of the book and the proposal were almost exclusively written while traveling. So so written in hotels, on trains, in airports. And I think that there was like a real energy and urgency and like flow 
that came, you know, like I'm just responding so deeply to what I'm seeing or feeling and my time is limited, my adrenaline's going and um, I'm also being interrupted a lot. And so I think like the early sort of drafting notes of the book feel sprawling and urgent and sort of maybe um, hyper romanticized. And, and I love that. I love that part of my writerly brain. But I think in the pandemic, because I was just sitting um, in my Brooklyn apartment at the desk that I'm at right now, as I'm speaking to you, and I was so contained that it really gave me a chance to think about um, structure and about more concision and and it put a sort of uh, brace around the book in a way that I think those two impulses are are in my to me, and again, I, maybe this is a rationalizing because that's what our brains do. Like, I think those two tensions play against each other in an interesting way on the sentence level. Um, so I, I kind of appreciate that to a certain extent. I think being on the other side of it, I don't know. I mean, I feel so far. So I, I just sold two new books. So I feel very deeply in those projects. Um, I'm really curious how you feel about this when you finish a book, if you come or even just, you know, profiles and, and articles that you write, if you feel like you can come back to them or look at them or be critical of them. Um, I don't really feel like I can do that. I haven't opened my book uh, at all past when I have to do a reading or something when I was on tour. I think my biggest hope, though, for the book is that I change my mind so much about what's in the book. So what I mean by that is I think I really as in my exploration of beauty and concepts of the self I take because I'm trained as a philosopher like I take a philosopher's sort of approach to those things which is to really respect their vastness and not try to pin them down to one specific thing. So I talk a lot about the experience of beauty and the aesthetic pleasures that that one can seek and what those can do to your mind um, or to your life or how they can expand your consciousness. And I do give toward the end of the book, like gently sort of my argument for what beauty is, but I very purposely kind of write that argument, not in like a, okay, and here's the big point of the book. Here's the like ta-da moment where I tell you the truth about what it means to like find something, find beauty in your life or whatever. I just sort of have it gently in there at the end of the book. And I do that because I just really hope that my thinking about all the ideas that are in this book get to evolve and shift and grow. And then in 10 years or 20 years or however, you know, I'll live forever. So, you know, a hundred years or whatever, um, I'll get to write a new book that revisit some of these ideas in like a completely new way. So I think the way I feel right now being on the other side of it is like, I feel really proud of, of this foray into uh, questions I'll never have answers to. And I feel really excited about all the new and better ideas that I'll have um, as I grow older and hopefully smarter and wiser over time. That's not guaranteed, but I'm going to try to get smarter <laughs> over time. So I, I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. Though I also was sort of asking, like, 
another part of my question was what is life like on this side of your decision to spend more time outside the neutral room? I mean, the simplest answer is like, I have a relationship with my son that is so deep and so profound, like that I just would never, ever have had without writing this book and really being so serious about the questions that I'm answering or trying to trying to ask of myself in this book. And I, and I don't really know how to explain it other than I'm just deep, deep in the, the work of life with him um, and the texture of life with him in a way that I never was when he was really little. And the impact that that will have on my life, I have no doubt will remain, you know, just immense. I think I'm also just, I mean, I think all of my relationships are better. I think I'm more honest and open with every single one of my friends, my family, my husband. And I think a lot of it is just because I gave myself the opportunity to spend a lot of time thinking about who I really desperately wanted to be. And I think just because of the way that my brain works, I need to process that through writing. And so to get a book long project to do that, I mean, what a gift. Yeah, that's, I mean, I feel like that's one of the biggest and best things a book project can do for you, right? Is to help you think for a long stretch of time about who, how you want to be. And then on the other side of it, you're closer to to being that way. Yeah. And I think it's really important that you say closer, right? Because it's not like, oh, all my problems are solved and I'm a perfectly integrated, like... (laughs) <laughs> no, no, no need for me to ever go to therapy. I've got it all. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm still me, but I'm me with an inch more awareness, an inch more compassion um, for myself and for other people. And certainly a f- more fine tuned awareness of my habits. And I think that is, that's, To me, those are the, like when people have those types of journeys of self-discovery or whatever, the ones that really move me are not the ones in which they're like, and my everything has changed. You know, it's like, no, the the journeys of self-discovery that really move me are the ones where they're like, I was less aware about this thing and now I'm more aware of it. And that's made a huge difference in my life. And that's it. That's like, I was really unaware of my habit of retreating from emotional difficulty. I did it so seamlessly that I had no consciousness of it. And now I do. And the ripple effect of that one small shift, which I've only gained through writing about it and questioning it through writing, that the ripple effect of that change is, I think, gonna, uh, I'll continue to discover how massive it is. Thresholds is produced by Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshawood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Special thanks to Justin Alvarez and our hosts at LitHub Radio. You can find out more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website. This is thresholds.com. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you normally listen, and subscribe and review us there. Thanks. We'll see you next week.